Hello and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Rich Christman, chair of Forefront Festival, and we're here at the 2022 Catholic Imagination Conference at University of Dallas in Dallas, Texas. It's been a fantastic and rejuvenating time so far of beauty, thought, fellowship, sanctifying growth and love for our Lord here over the past few hours. We've only been here a couple hours so far, but it's been a All great, that already? <laughs> it really has been. Am I yes. wrong? Yeah. Indeed. Um, I think I've heard Tolkien's name mentioned more times than in my whole life up to this point, so I'm pretty excited about that. Which we will not argue with. Yeah, no. I'm thrilled to have with me here in the university studio, uh, poet Paul J. Pastor, who is a guest artist here at the conference. How are you today, Paul? I'm doing great. It's so good to see you, Rich and Nate. Thanks good. for uh, bringing me in. Yeah, Thanks for absolutely. being here. Thanks for being here. Um, for listeners who may not know Paul Pastor yet, he's a poet, author, and editor at Penguin Random House. His writing has been featured in many publications that you guys likely know and love, like Ecstasis, Solemn Literary Press, Fathom, as well as having been anthologized in the New York Quarterly Review. I just finished your book recently, Bauer Lodge, mm-hmm. about a year-ish old. Uh, what an awesome collection. We're going to get into that and some other poetry mm-hmm. in a few minutes. But just to get us started, in your words, what brought you to the conference here? And what are you, what are you presenting here this weekend? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, uh, so I am, among many other things, uh, a student in the MFA program at the University of St. Thomas. So awesome. my, my dear friend, yeah, James Matthew Wilson, and then... Mm-hmm. Quite a few other remarkable Christian poets and fiction writers have sort of circled around that program. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's really special. Like there's this kind of moment happening right now in Christian in Christian literature, and uh, it feels like it's a small epicenter there at the University mm. of St. Thomas. So uh, where is that? It's located in Houston. Houston, but okay. it's a low residency program that's pretty much exclusively online. So okay, I'm gotcha. of course based in Oregon. Cool. Yeah, so that's that's the connection. I and uh, a few other great writers, Seth Wick, Dorian Speed, and Leslie Clinton, uh, were invited by James Matthew Wilson and uh, Jessica Hooten Wilson, no, no, right, relation no relation to James, <laughs> yeah. uh, to come and present some of our new work here uh, to help kick the conference off. Very cool. And a uh, quick shout out too to Jessica Hooten Wilson and uh, University of Dallas for allowing us to or inviting us out here, and uh, University of Dallas specifically for uh, giving us this cool podcast studio that we're recording from. So thank you to both of you guys for making this possible. Um, So before we get into anything, uh, I have to subject you to what we call the lightning round on 4360 interviews. (laughs) So you probably get this already, but lightning is going to strike a couple times, and I'll ask you a question. Give me your first uh, thoughts in response. Great. Cool. Um, Well, we kind of touched on this, but where do you live? I live in uh, just east of Portland, Oregon. You like that? I, most of the time. Good, good, good. <laughs> it's like Mad Max right now, like literal, like, you know, converted RV trailers full of war boys, like oh. rolling out of the hills and, you know, so chrome, so shining. We got to get out there. Yeah. Witness me. Witness um, me. Do you live in a house or an apartment? I do. We, we own our house. Cool. Uh, we've, we've been there for about 10 years. So just, nice. just shy. Yeah. Cool. Um, coffee, tea, or something else? Ooh, um, I, I love both coffee and tea, but I also am a big fan of Herba Mate when Ooh, I can get okay, it. yeah. Mm. Do, what's your tea type? Black, green, oolong. oolong. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I like fermented teas and also Lapsang Sushan. Oh, I love Lapsang, yeah. Mm. Winston Churchill, you and I can enjoy that. Yes. Um, what's your favorite thing to cook at home? Oh, cook that's at a all? great question. Uh, yeah, I, I loved this is going to be ridiculously on brand for anyone who follows me on Twitter. (laughs) 
I love cooking mushrooms. Okay. Specifically shiitake mushrooms. So I grow shiitake mushrooms out back on um, white oak logs. And what an Oregon thing to do. I tell you, exactly. there is nothing like walking out and picking some fresh shiitakes yeah. from your white oak logs and coming in and cooking those up with some butter and salt. That sounds great. Mm. Yeah. I was going to say, like, what do you pair them with? Obviously, you can have them on their own. Is there anything you're like, mm. oh, if I could pair it with something? Ah, you do? pair it with a big breath of fresh air. Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Had in the outdoors. Yeah. I, I've spoiled myself where, like, I mean, I, I like a good, uh, you know, steak, like any, you don't like most people, but I, uh, I, with good mushrooms and caramelized onions on top, uh. now I almost can't really fully enjoy a steak anymore without that, that additive. Mm. So it's I can imagine some fresh, yeah. uh, shiitakes on a piece of steak. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, if you were given the opportunity to travel anywhere in the world for a weekend for free, mm. where would it be? Ah, Patagonia. Okay. Yeah. Argentina? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. I want to see I want to see the stars in the southern hemisphere. Oh, yeah. I've never been south of yeah. the equator. I've, I've traveled yes. quite a bit, but I just want to go and like lie out under those new constellations and yeah. look up there and just be like, "What?" Yes. That's it. Like yes. I mean, think of it. Like you walk outdoors yeah. and you would see different stars. Yes. Yeah. I am yeah. I've I'm so glad you said that. I'm so I've always been so fascinated by the fact that there are still places on this planet, at least to U.S. Americans that are so that are foreign enough that it could feel like another world, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then I'd love to get out there. That'd be so cool. Yeah, we'll um, come to Portland. It'll feel like another world. Yeah, in a, we, in a different way than yeah. that. For, forefront <laughs> Portland, twenty twenty five, rock and roll. Um, what is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Oh, my children's faces right after they were born. That's a great answer. Yeah. I have a. Mm. My wife and I have a child on the way. Mm. I, I look forward to that experience. Nate has two. Mm. Couple, couple kids. Yeah. What music do you listen to the most often? <laughs> oh boy, um, this this is perhaps not on brand. I actually listen to a lot of pretty hard rock and heavy metal. Okay. Um, like contemporary or like 80s, 90s? Um, 80s, 90s, and contemporary. Okay. Like I like a lot of like sludge metal, like slow, like like psychedelic, like yeah. very riff-based desert rock. Yes. Um, bands with names like, you know, Dope Lord and like just crazy ridiculous stuff I mean, like, like this. like Mad Max stuff. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Maybe. Like yeah, Portland, yeah. So the Doof Warrior. Yeah. yeah, no, that's um, cool. That's cool. Yeah, no, but but there, I like a lot of other stuff too. I love folk music. I absolutely love mm -hmm. folk music, but my, my editorial work music, for whatever reason, it needs to drop into that kind of rhythmic riff heavy yeah. noise beat and yeah. it's my happy place. Cool. That, that rings true. Yeah, there's yeah. a question we were going to ask about that, so <laughs> we'll, that, that's we'll really there. cool. I will just say, we were, we were just talking to Greg Wolf, and he was saying uh, he listens to Electronica. Okay. And it was yeah. just like, yeah. that's, it's awesome, because it's like, well, I wouldn't have guessed that, but once you yeah. think about it, it's like, yeah, that would be. Yeah. <laughs> this, maybe this shows how, how small my, uh, I need to broaden my scope a little bit, but it surprises me every time some sort of a, you know, Catholic or historic Christian writer, you know, likes some sort of anything electronic or like internet based. I'm yeah. always like, what? But it shows uh, they have a connection to modernity. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> The yeah, works of the past. <laughs> exactly. Um, so who are one or two of your favorite authors or poets that are writing today? Mm. Oh, there are so many. Um, and I'm very conscious that I'm going to be leaving out so many, uh, so many people. It's a lightning round. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> okay. I'll try and keep it lightning. -y. This is slow lightning. Okay. So uh, Marley Yeomans, 
Everyone okay. should read Marley Yeomans. Marley is a friend and um, a little bit of a long-distance mentor, I'd like to think. Cool. But her her collection called The Book of the Red King is... Uh, is What a title. Yeah, it's an achievement. And one of the things that I love... Oh, we can go on about this as the lightning round. Marley. Read read Marley. Buy cool. The Book of the Red King. Uh, by Valiad. Yeah, you'll love that. Um, who else am I reading right now? Well, here, here's here's one that I'll say. I mean, I mean, I can't say he's like my favorite right now, but uh, Jason uh, Guriel, who um, mm-hmm. released a collection called, well, a it's basically a verse novel in heroic couplets called Forgotten Work. Wow. And I love uh, it's it's like set in a future dystopia, and it's written in heroic couplets. And wow. one of the things that both Jason and Marley do that I'm very interested in is like long form narrative poetry. Mm. It's like the roots of poetry yeah. or it's in like storytelling. the original yes. poetry. Yes, yeah. and they're yeah. reinventing it in some very interesting and beautiful ways. Uh, and they're asking a lot of the same questions that I'm asking in my work. So mm. I would say, yeah, read Jason and read Marley if you're, you're looking for my cool. lightning opinion. Love it. Kaboom. Lightning. Tolkien or Lewis? Charles Williams. Oh, nice. Okay. You rejected your premise. I like that. <laughs> Good job. Okay, sweet. Yeah. So before we get into Bower Lodge and other things, let's just talk about kind of poetry and faith in general. Um, poetry has been called by some uh, as kind of a, a dead or dying art, maybe not as relevant as it used to be. But of course, uh, I think you, you write poetry with a, a liveliness and a real... Um, I think conviction of its its value and its uh, possibility, hmm. and so I just wonder how how did you kind of come to that liveliness and love for poetry? Yeah, uh, what what kind of keeps you going? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, to um, to adapt a famous quote, I think the rumors of poetry's death have been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> greatly exaggerated. Love that. <laughs> yes, uh, and for several reasons. One is like when somebody's like, "Oh yeah, I don't, I don't really like poetry." I'm like, "Well, do you listen to songs?" Like, mm-hmm. like, like, literally anything. What sort Bob of poetry Dylan, or like? Taylor Swift. <laughs> like, it's like saying I don't like bread or I don't like water. Yeah. Like, poetry is freaking everywhere. Yeah. And the truth is, you can't speak English without speaking poetry. Mm. The idiom and uh, the rhythm. It's a very unique language, even among world languages. And poetic and bardic roots go all the way back. Uh, they predate the existence of our language, and so mm. it's woven into. Mm being a native English speaker, even an American one, and it's woven into our culture. Yeah. That actually values poetry much more than we think we might. So mm. while it's true that 100 years ago, poets were among the best sellers, right? Yeah. Like you can't look at something like say Hamilton um, and, and not say sure. like that's objectively poetry. Right. Yeah. Uh, whether you like it or not, like yeah. it is, and it's yeah. massively popular. Like kids are singing it and it's the ringtones oh, yeah. on people's phones. So yeah. largely because of the poetry itself. Exactly. Yeah. Because of what? Metaphor, repetition, rhyme, beat, like the essential mm-hmm. elements of poetry are there and they are beloved yeah. and it is alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first thing I would do in answer to your question is just like point to that, like just mm-hmm. generally wave my arms like, like a <laughs> all drunk <this>. seagull. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and yeah, say, yeah. look at all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then when it comes to like the type of poetry that I do, which is more traditionally what people might think of as poetry, right? Yeah. Literature, trying yeah, to make yeah. some literature. Form of a book. Form of a book or in a journal or whatever. Yeah, my love for that came um, really as a high schooler, like um, for, for better and for worse, I was 
um, not exclusively self-educated, but largely self-educated in a very small uh, rural town of uh, just over 2,000 people in Oregon's coastal mountains. And my two havens were the woods and the public library. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I read, I read so voraciously philosophy, fiction, all this different stuff. But I also just read a freaking ton of poetry. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with a lot of like, you know, sort of like the the real cliched stuff like that, you know, Tennyson and, and Edgar Allan Poe and like those types of things. But through it all, I just got this, this capacity for the storytelling qualities that poetry can carry and the fun and the rhythm and the music of it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just, you know, the the lilt of, you know, many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, that that those writers have, it, it got into my blood. So it's just more fun to write and to read than yeah. Yeah, perhaps it, another way of saying the same thing. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly right. So um, yeah, I, I don't know what else I could shed light on there other than it's it's always sort of been part of my writing life and my creative life. Yeah. Even though at various times it's been closer to the front or closer to the back of my mind, uh, poetry has always been there, and uh, yeah, still here. It's your, awesome. uh, the start of your answer reminded me of I think it's Tim Keller when when people say they don't believe in God, he asks, "Which God don't you believe in?" <laughs> and it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting question, yeah. and uh, it just it just reminds me of saying like, "Oh well, I don't I don't like poetry." Which poetry yeah, don't you exactly. like? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yeah. Fascinating. So, four from three sixty, we discussed the intersection of art and faith, right? So, there's the art question. Here's your here's the faith question. So, um, we're at the Catholic Imagination Conference, but we've uh, we've spoken to people of various uh, backgrounds within Christianity. Mm-hmm. What is your background in faith, briefly? Yeah, very briefly. So, you know, when I was you know, born up through kind of early middle grade school, um, my family really had no no particular faith at all. Mm-hmm. Um, just generally, sort of Eastern Zen transcendental meditation sure. type people, mm-hmm. like hippies who lived in a trailer and all that. Uh, then my family had a really profound coming to faith experience uh, into charismatic Christianity, and so mm-hmm. uh, for most of my growing up, that was that was really important. Uh, then I entered theological education and. Uh, really, really valued my time there uh, before joining an Anglican church about 12 years ago, yeah. um, being confirmed uh, really in, in an Anglo-Catholic um, setting there. And so I would describe myself as a creedal Christian, mm-hmm. uh, though my tradition or my flavor is absolutely Anglican in nature. Uh, our, some of my closest and most reciprocal spiritual relationships and friendships are with Roman Catholics. Um, I have dear friends who have embraced Eastern Orthodoxy, really dear friends who are all flavors of Protestant and Evangelical. And from each of those traditions, I see something remarkably beautiful, which is probably yeah, the most that. Anglican thing I could possibly <laughs> right, say. Right, right, right. Like that, that yeah. shows on, on brand. Anglicanism yeah. equally <laughs> reformed via, than Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Via media, uh-huh, yeah, the middle uh-huh. way. Yes. So, yes. so I am a really, really a true Anglican in that sense. But a lot of my personal spirituality, even even and always specifically as a Christian, has focused on um, uh, how can I describe it? It's like, a question I always ask myself is what would I be if I had never heard the gospel? Like, like right. what would just my innate spiritual state be? And I think I would be a very, a very happy pagan, mm-hmm. um, but who's, who sees himself in a world that is alive, in a world that is very spiritual, mm-hmm. in a world that 
uh, is a rich spiritual ecosystem and not at all exclusively an evil world at all, even, right. even with that spiritual numinous way. And so I do see these rich, rich, profound spiritual realities and energies that um, are very compatible with, uh, with you know, a Christian understanding of, of the world. And uh, I think that's kind of how we're supposed to live is, is in this in this rich ecosystem. So I've you know drawn a lot of life from um, you know Taoism and uh, you know philosophies from the East and kind of nature-based things like um, from from the West too. Um, but kind of calling all of that under the clear lordship of Christ mm-hmm, and saying mm-hmm. like here we are. So yeah, it's very integrative, complex, but. Yeah, Christ is uh, the Lord of all things, mm. and uh, all good things mm. come from. Mm. That's absolutely the capital right. G good. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Okay, so we're not going to talk just about this, but um, you have this awesome collection of poetry come out uh, in the last year called Bower Lodge. Um, cool title. I love the art, by mm, the way. It really you. stuck out to me. Um, Anyone who's listening, if you're not too familiar with this yet, you might as well, you know, pause the episode and and order the book. And, yeah, go you know, buy a few and, copies. Yeah, yeah, a couple. Send them to your friends. Yeah. Um, good times. Um, beautiful book. So in the book, you set up a journey mm-hmm. in the book um, that it seems to me, as I was reading through, as kind of like a sanctifying or possibly even sacramental sort of journey mm-hmm. where... Um, I came away with the idea that I could go through this journey with you mm. uh, and come out somehow changed or reformed in some ways. Mm-hmm. Am I understanding your intention? Completely. Right? Yeah. Cool. It's it's, uh, it's not accidental that there's a big moth with eyes <laughs> that, that yes. we, we cut into linoleum and printed out. I um, thought they were woodcuts. That. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you about the art process later. But yeah. yeah, it's not accidental to have a moth there because, you know, the moth, like the butterfly, uh, becomes a soup of itself as mm-hmm. part of its life cycle. So... Here it is, this creature. It's gone through life as a caterpillar or a grub or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Eating and eating and eating and consuming and consuming and consuming. And then all of a sudden something happens it can't control and it has to build this shell. It has to build this cocoon and it goes in there. Mm. And, and, you know, the scientists will tell us it literally liquefies. Mm. It becomes soup. It is no longer anything recognizable to what it used to be. Wow. Mm. And it's because of that process that something emerges later on that uh, is able to fly, is able to reproduce, is able to to pollinate things, to give its gift to the world. It's Mm -hmm. because of that process of decomposition. So the book is about the beauties of of transformation and the beauties of horrible change. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Those moments in life where it's like, I cannot not go through this. I don't want it. I don't choose it. It's a practice for death. It feels like death. But on the other side, the promises that for those who can embrace the surrender and the resignation of those types of processes, who can enter what you know I call the Bower Lodge and do that work of death, even in small ways, uh, you will come out on the other side different. So I, it is very much a theme book, a message book. Right. And the poetry all emerged from this set of images that for me was connected with that process of transformation. Mm-hmm. And such a, I'm sure this is purposeful, right? But uh, such a deeply... Christian mm-hmm. 
worldview, just the fact that we there is a necessary rebirth, the metaphor, the analogy, the metaphor to the moth, right, or the the caterpillar. So cool. Yeah. Um, Be born again to die and rise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You lose yourself to find yourself. Right. How? um, So uh, this is actually off script here, but I'm I'm thinking now. How long? That's where it gets good. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You know, we'll do it live. How? um, So like. The poems in this book, when, how long was kind of the process of mm. writing? Like, did you write these over the course of many years mm-hmm. or did you kind of dive in? question. Yeah. yeah so, the, you know, the total span did cover years, probably about a seven-year period. But the okay. vast majority of the poems in there were written in about a two-year period. Okay. So a much shorter time. And it was a time that felt like, as many people do in midlife, this moment of becoming the soup, of becoming right. something that was like, okay, something is happening. Mm. Um, I'm a big fan of this death psychologist named Bill Plotkin, and he talks a lot about how uh, there are these moments uh, in the human growth and development cycle uh, of what he calls soul initiation. Mm. And one of them that we would all recognize is probably adolescence. Like sure. your, your body does something, you can't not go through adolescence, mm. all right? And so here's this moment of initiation, you, you enter it and then come out on the other side changed. But there's another one that you know moves from early adulthood into like, true adulthood that is not tied necessarily to a physical change, but it is tied to a soul change. And mm-hmm. it's, and it's that process um, that I think I was, I was really working to honor uh, with Bauer Lodge. Hmm. Mm. Very cool. So uh, we have a, a number of favorite poems in the book, but I wonder, uh, do you have a, a favorite poem in Bauer Lodge or another uh, poem that you've written recently that you really like that maybe you'd like to, to share with us? Oh, sure. I mean, I can, I can read anything. Why don't we read something from Bauer Lodge just yeah. to, to kick us off yeah. here? Okay. Yeah. Here, let's see if I can remember. Why don't I read the title poem? Yeah. How's mm-hmm. that? Right. A very good place to start. Okay. Bauer Lodge. You'll know the day has come because you fear it. The comfortable omens fail. The geese fly north in winter. Then will be the time to do your first great dying, to follow your familiar stranger into the house you dread. Set below the river that cares not if you love it, but flows away regardless, never twice the same. A little like your soul, this water that goes onward, elegant and simple, only what it is. And nothing more are you laid down within the bower. Here the lodge of death smells of smoke and salt. For the work of death is dying. Not many of us do it. We certainly expire, but death is not the same as expiration. It is a clarity of being, a last annunciation that starts again anew. So listen, die well in the bower of the river. Let it wash you of yourself, then treasure what is left. Your gift will be the greater when geese fly south in summer. You can call them to the river, for you will know your name. Have you ever been invited to record audiobooks? <laughs> I, I I have enjoyed. Uh, I, I recorded my an audio book for the Face of the Deep, which is my my book on the Holy Spirit, and very, very much enjoyed cool. that. Yeah. Beautiful. I would love an audio copy of this whole collection. Maybe you'll get one. Yeah, yeah. that'd be lovely. <laughs> yeah. um, Must be commissioned. Wow. 
great. We'll thank you. Call you at night that. and speak you to sleep. Yeah, yeah. You could get connected with like the Hallow app and read your, <laughs> your, your poems on it. <laughs> oh, there you um, go. Yeah. Yeah, you should uh, do one for Dwell Bible app. Yes, <laughs> yes, that'd be <laughs> the great. The Paul Pastor. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Um, what a poem. And honestly, and I'm not just saying this because we're interviewing you, but like that was uh, sometimes you read something in your own internal voice and you mm. read it in a certain way and then you hear it read uh, mm. by the writer and it takes a new life. And that definitely happened mm. for me as you were reading it. So that was, mm-hmm. that was so cool. Mm. Um, so f- especially for those that are listening that haven't spent a ton of time with the book, I'm actually going to jump to a question I was going to ask later, but I think it's appropriate because you just read this. So like... Um, like a bower, right? Mm. Being, <laughs> in my understanding, right? Being like a mm. a shaded, mm-hmm. uh, protected, almost mm-hmm. like almost like a hiding place mm-hmm. to some degree, like a safe space. Exactly. So, would you? Is. I guess what what are your bowers? <laughs> like, like are you is is poetry a mm. a hiding place for you, mm. or is that a place where you come out? Yeah, that's a great question. Hmm. You know, I think the woods are. Um, I mean, I said earlier the importance that, that nature and, like, libraries had for me mm-hmm. during my formative years, and I don't think that's ever changed. There is a retreat uh, and a really holy kind of retreat that I take into the wilderness uh, and into books, which somehow just feel like two parts of the same thing to me so often. Mm-hmm. But I spend, I, sp- I do spend a lot of time wandering around in the woods behind our house, you know, just kind of being quiet. I, I try to try to do that as much as I can. And um, one of the things that's really beautiful about entering those spaces where humanity has not defined the terms of its engagement with nature is, huh. is and that's very important. Uh, is you meet something other than yourself. Mm. Um, mm. And in so doing, you're able to know yourself, mm. even as a species. I, I'm hearing some uh, some hero's journey, uh, Joseph yeah. Campbell type yeah. stuff. Well, yeah, 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 you're hearing that because it's, it's, it's present in nature. Like right. those things mm-hmm. are present first in, you know, Joseph wouldn't have had anything if it wasn't for myth, and myth wouldn't have anything if people didn't go in the woods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. The darkness, right? <laughs> right. And, and the light. And so, yeah, there are a lot of those mythic overtones, um, but they're also really earthy and they're they're just, they're the rocks and the bones and the leaves and sure. the trees. And it's awesome. The cute little mushrooms. What do you, what do you mean by um, the terms of engagement, like you said? Like what, what mm. um, can you expand on that at yeah, all? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of our world today uh, sets sets the rules of how they engage with nature and they sure. are never asked to be in a place of actual danger or inconvenience make except in the most extreme subject. circumstances yes yes um that's not healthy mm-hmm. it's not good people routinely ought to and i think they do yearn to be in spaces larger than themselves yeah connection with these large places, um, the ocean, Mm. the mountains, the desert, the forest, like capital letters at the beginning of each, right? The ocean with a capital O. And when we do that, um, yeah, you you never know what's going to come up for you. You can't can't predict whether you will laugh or cry. Um, Mm. And that's because you're meeting something that is... Uh, not necessarily better than yourself, but it's, you're just larger than you. So, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, it, it needs to be, there needs to be true wildness. Yeah. Um, 
I really believe that to, to call out the wildness in ourselves. So that's what that. I mean by that. I love that. That uh, just, just reminded me in, in my own experience as a kid, we took a trip to Africa and were on the Maasai Mara and to, to give two contrasting experiences, mm. one in a hot air balloon mm. where we flew overhead and could easily see like every mm. kind of bush animal. It's like, oh, there are the giraffes, there are the elephants, there are wow. the zebras, like everything's just there. It's incredible and it's beautiful. Yeah. And I think um, that was wonderful in its own way. Mm. But then at another time during the trip, we took like a hike through mm. the bush and were actually charged by an elephant. Amazing. <laughs> which, wow. <laughs> which at the time I didn't even realize like what an elephant charge would be like. And like, yes. it didn't seem particularly fast to me, but it was like covering ground toward us. And so like the Maasai warriors all got together and raised their spears and shouted. Mm. So they would appear like an, like a large animal to scare off the elephant. Um, and I was, how just, old were you at this time? I was like eight years old. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So it was, um, but that was that experience of like, oh my goodness, like we can, cannot control these creatures, mm -hmm. right? Like we are entering into their habitat. Mm -hmm. um, so I just reminded me of that. And I wonder it's a like- perfect metaphor. Yeah. That, yeah. Especially yeah. the hot air balloon, like looking down yeah. from above versus <laughs> oh, actually being there. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's true for all of us. Yeah. But as a culture, we've lost our ability, I think, to really connect with those wild things. Yeah. And it's sad. We, have, we are the losers. Yeah. Have, just have you had any experiences like that where you've like been in the wildness oh, yeah. and just come out of that like yeah. oh my goodness oh I yes believe that just absolutely <laughs> right um we could spend the rest of the day talking about it yeah yeah i've 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 faced the lions uh, literally and figuratively nice mountain lions i'll leave it at oh, that west. for now okay yeah. my uh, on a, a on a much here. less <laughs> on a much less dramatic uh scale <laughs> than being charged by an elephant or, or facing the lion um one thing that i've i've struggled to explain to a lot of people in my life over the years um my so we come from upstate new york mm -hmm. a very snowy place mm -hmm. uh infamously so um my favorite season is winter mm -hmm. and it took me years to understand why winter was my favorite season and i as i kind of entered adulthood i think i figured it out which mm -hmm. among other things like you know i'm kind of an indoor person i like reading and whatnot and i'm also a big skier i've been skiing since i was mm -hmm. four those things are all nice but i think the true reason why i like winter the best is because there is this small subliminal understanding when I am out in my regular town or in my own backyard or whatever, when there's three feet of snow mm. and it's below freezing and it's snowing outside, that I am in a small amount of danger. Mm. Like, like if I am in, in the summer or in the early autumn or in the late spring or whatever, if I become, if I lose my way in the woods mm -hmm. in upstate New York, the chances are very high that I will eventually find a road mm -hmm. or whatever and I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. But if I'm going on a hike near my house in a park mm -hmm. in the dead of winter in deep snow mm -hmm. and I lose my way or break my leg or something, mm -hmm. there is a very real danger there. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, and I identify with what you said that we, we yearn mm -hmm. to stand in front of that maw a little mm -hmm. bit because I think that is actually what being human mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And 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 the 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 hobbit, mm -hmm. right? The idea that like when we always live in the hobbit hole, mm -hmm. there's delicious food and, <laughs> and warm fires and such in the hobbit hole. Mm -hmm. But the real 
adventure, the real life, the real world is out there outside the gate and um, just beautiful stuff. And, and I definitely, uh, if you pick up this book, obviously you're mm-hmm. hearing it from Paul here, but if you pick up this book, you will find those themes throughout the book, mm-hmm. which is really cool. One last very brief thought on that, and that's that such experiences are practice. Such experiences are practice for the moments of life where where we are genuinely out of our control. And there will come a final moment for all of us of death, of like actual physical death, where uh, you know Richard Rohr talks about the need to practice for that uh, in advance of that actual moment. And there is something about the small invitations into surrender and kind of a, a joyful open-handedness um, that I really, I really long to communicate, uh, like the, the beauty of that, like we are, we are capable of, of so much. So mm-hmm. yeah, the, the longing for that wildness, I think is an instinctual desire to be well-practiced um, for the eventual moment of our death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not to be a downer, but. Maybe the next poetry collection could be called Practicing for Death. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, maybe. Very cool. Let's, uh, let's move to a, a, a lighter question here for a minute. So like we kind of referenced in the lighting round, I feel that a lot, as I was reading through the book, I noticed that a lot of your poems had what appeared to me to be a, a musical quality. Ah, yeah. So are, are you a musician yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not a particularly good one, but um, yeah, I've played guitar since high school. Cool. Uh, mostly, you know, I just play by ear, but uh, I really enjoy playing music with other people and... It's awesome. Yeah, it's always been part of my life. So um, you did kind of touch on this, but perhaps because of what you're listening to when you edit or whatever, I definitely uh, picked up like pretty early on and I was actually talking to Nate about mm-hmm. it as I was reading the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very cool rhythmic yeah. like feature and yeah. tone to a lot of your writing yeah. where it almost feels, um, I, I could like hear almost like a, like mm-hmm. almost like a drum circle yes, type it's thing. it's a beat. Yeah, And absolutely. it's a rhythm, exactly right. Cool. So, um, you know, Meter is what most people talk about or think about in terms of like, sure. you know, the that beat quality in a poem. I am not a particularly metrical poet, although I do occasionally write in form and meter, and I'm I'm not bad at it. But I'm an extremely rhythmic poet, mm-hmm. uh, and like my like my music, um, for better or worse, it's largely by ear, it's largely by sound, but it has to have that pulse. It has to have an internal self-consistency for the piece. It has to sound good read out loud. It's intended to do that. I I really love uh, Robert Pinsky on this. He talks about how poetry is a type of music that uses the human body, like the mm-hmm. resonant mm-hmm. qualities of the human body, even of the audience, sure. mm-hmm. to you know, somebody who's reading and vocalizing your poem becomes the instrument of the poet yeah. in yes. a very real sense. And I believe that like down to my boots. Yeah. So I'm glad you picked up on that yeah. because it's a very important quality of my work. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm two for two so far with my observations. Great, That's pretty good. <laughs> nailing um, Yeah. I'm a high school English teacher, so I, I'm, I'm checking myself. I'm <laughs> yeah. checking my boxes here. Um, very cool. Um, awesome. I also really like, um, let's not talk about um, the Kintsugi poem quite yet, because mm. we'll get to that. But um, I, you do some cool stuff with enjambment and mm. like broken mm-hmm. lineation. Mm-hmm. And um, you can speak to this if you want, but uh, just an observation that I'm making too is I've always been attracted to more traditional forms of yeah. poetry. I really like the structures. But one thing that like has all, like really stands out as really awesome to me about uh, like 20th century and contemporary mm-hmm. modern poetry is the 
really cool stuff that can be done with <laughs> musical pacing mm. by where you break the lines. Yeah. And I, uh, I just was very impressed by the way that you did that. Mm. Now, I'm assuming from your prior answer that your um, line break choices mm -hmm. are to create the pace or tempo mm -hmm. that you're looking yeah, for, right? Exactly right. Yeah, it's one of the few ways that a poet can really affect um, a reader's, you know, essentially your punctuation and line breaks and things like that are how you affect the quality of time right. for a reader. And so, yeah, you're slowing people down at the turns that are intentional if you're right. doing it well. Many modern poets don't. Yeah. Like they just, it, it feels very arbitrary. I can't figure out why you're doing it. But yeah. when you're, you're working with someone who's writing free or formal verse well, they are using those time periods intentionally. The Kintsugi poem really is the key to understanding how in Bauer Lodge I've actually done that. Well, you know what? Actually, pause right there. Let's just do it. We got a, uh, an audience question from our friend Mako Fujimura. <laughs> oh, you did? Yes. Mako? Um, yeah, and I'll ask, hi, I'll, I'll ask you that in a minute. Hi, Mako. Yeah, hi, Mako. Oh. I'll ask you that in a minute. But um, I, I, a massive, um, you know, Cheshire Cat esque grin came across uh, my face oh. when I flipped to page 102 in the yes. book and saw, um, and I think it went like this, to be honest. I think it went like this. I, I flipped the page, I saw the word kintsugi, which I, as a, as a, uh, an American, I immediately associate with Mako. with Mako. And I was like, oh, Mako. And then I started reading and it was like, for Makoto. And I was like, of course, of course. Anyway, yeah. so I wonder oh, if you would true. read this poem oh, to us. To. And then I'll ask you Mako's question after Oh, that, that sounds beautiful. Uh, yes, um, and I'll just say for readers, yes, it's on page 102 and you can't fully appreciate this without seeing it. Yes. So sorry, yes. you are being left out of the the, the best part of the poem well, by not yeah. buy the it. book and open it and then yeah. listen to this buy, buy three or four copies of the book you so might want to open a couple copies Christmas of the book year. on the table so you could like compare you yeah, yeah. alright thank you alright Kintsugi song for Makoto glinting I chant the space between what ought to touch honor all snapped threads gild knees with calluses I chant fragments of a priceless bowl swept on tiles by a broom. I chant slips and irreversible disasters, wiltings, failures, scars, the little disappointments and the large, blue streaks down a world that wishes it was only sun colors. I chant upended sight, name precious every jagged everything. I brush compassion like Urushi, I chant wrinkles, heartaches, lamentations for the lively dead, undustings of the dust, unbreakings of the breaks. I chant gold into the cracks. Touch my roughness, my smoothness. If such honor is not faith, then what could make peace? What mend a heart with double-blessed and most offensive beauty? Hmm. So good. Offensive beauty is such a great term. <laughs> yeah. So on, on that, you know, kintsugi, if you're unfamiliar, the, the ancient Japanese practice of using gold to repair broken pottery to make the breaks in a piece, uh, to repair them and make the item more beautiful than it was before yeah. in its repairing. Um, what a great metaphor for what Christ does hmm. uh, to us 
as well. And if when you look and you read the poem, right, when you see it, um, Paul does awesome stuff with breaking the poem mm-hmm. in a way that it is repaired. So cool. Well, Mako asked, so speaking of rebuilding ourselves mm. uh, in Christ, right? Mako asked, what do you see as poetry's role in sanctifying the imagination? Oh, my goodness. What a perfect question. Thank you, Mako. Poetry and prayer, in my opinion, are the two highest forms of memory. Mm. They are a means of remembering. Yeah, I almost want to leave it at that. But, mm. but memory is inherently holy. What we do when we remember something is we hold, we hold something with our attention that would otherwise be lost to time, either future or past. Hmm. And what poetry is able to do is give a handle, a really sacred, well-crafted handle to an image, to a moment, to a person, to a word, to a name, to a sunset, to a grief, and you are able to hold it you're able to hold it. That's that's, yeah. that's what I would say. And so that's inherently holy, and and it, and it, and it's a practice. It practices you to do that in everyday life. So, mm-hmm. given enough time in prayer, given enough time with poetry, you will live differently. Yeah. Walt Whitman has one of his. Whitman's a very divisive figure, and I, sure. I, I like him on odd-numbered days, and I hate him on even-numbered days. <laughs> um, but Whitman has a gorgeous, gorgeous poem. I can't quote it from memory, and it's also very long. But the bottom line is he he gives all of this advice about living, and then essentially, and it's really good advice. It's kind of like gospel advice. And then at the end, he's like, if you do all this, I'm paraphrasing, you will become a poem. Like in the very lines and wrinkles of your face, you will be a poem. And so as the imagination is sanctified, a life is sanctified, relationships are sanctified, places are sanctified, and it, and it moves from the abstract into the concrete incredibly quickly. Um, if I am- I love that. If I am a good poet, I will be a better husband, a better father, a better brother and son. I will be a better neighbor. I will be a better Christian. Like all of those relationships will be positively touched because my imagination is getting practice in what it feels like to have the discipline of holy attention. And that really is the Kintsugi work, right? Like my understanding of it is you're taking this thing that's broken and shattered and fragmented. And man, is is that not the perfect image of many of our lives, but also of our cultural moment, like fragmentation and breaking. And what division, what gorgeous promises are held. Like those places can be honored mm-hmm. with a more valuable thing than even the original was. It can become more valuable, more beautiful because of the mending. Mm-hmm. And poetry is practice in that mending. And dare I say, a, you know, a theological treatise here, but the, the question that, that so many people have asked and, and still ask, I do a, a, a spirituality club with high school students, and a question that is asked so frequently by 
Christians and non-Christians alike is if God loves people, if God so loved the world, right, and he created the world and it was good, why allow humanity to fall at all? Mm-hmm. What what was he doing there? And people break down and they're like, this story doesn't make sense mm-hmm. because there's no motive for God to allow humanity to fall. Mm-hmm. But he's shown us in so many different ways, including in Kintsugi and including in poetry and in what he did for us on the cross, mm-hmm. that the repaired vessel is more than it was before it was broken. Mm-hmm. And that new creation is what mm. we're all waiting for. It has been remade. Yeah. We have an audience question from Connor Sweetman. He's the founder of Ecstasis, and he wants to hear about a moment or two that were pivotal in moving you, Paul, toward the life you live now mm. as an editor, forager, and visionary <laughs> for faithful literature. Hmm. Oh, it's a great question. I'm sure when he says forager, he means both for mushrooms yeah. and for great ideas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. I love finding things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of those moments came right at the end of my time in seminary. Um, there was a specific moment in Rock Creek Tavern way out in kind of Helvetia, Oregon, where my wife and I were sitting in front of a fireplace drinking something tasty. I was getting ready to graduate from the seminary program. I'd been been thinking that I would go on into... Um, sort of like biblical literature and like eventually get my doctorate and all that stuff. And I was just losing steam. I was like, this is not for me. I don't want to be spending the rest of my life uh, talking about old books. I want to be making new ones, basically. And so she said, like, what do you what do you want to do? And I was like, honestly, baby, I want to live in the woods with you and make books. But who gets basically who gets yeah, to do that? Yeah. And she, being the best person ever to exist in any universe, basically was like, well, let's do it. Like, let's give it two years. She said, okay. Yeah. She's like, (laughs) all right. So let's give it two years and try. And that way you don't have to ever wonder like what would have happened. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but we're going to try. And that conversation was quickly followed by one in which my thesis reader at Western um, basically asked me the same question. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing after this. And he's like, well, I hope you've considered writing totally out of the blue. He's like, because we put your name in for a grant funded residency at a magazine in Chicago. Mm. So that magazine ended up being Christianity Today. Mm, I got the residency. I worked for them for just shy of four years. And it was really my start in editorial and my start in publishing. Uh, But it really came because of my wife's generous openness and encouragement. Mm -hmm. Then, yeah, you asked for a couple. I mean, I I would say that's a pretty key one. Just real quick, just so I can can connect here. What's your wife's name? Emily. Emily. Yeah. Okay. Names matter to me. Emily and Pastor. Yeah. Very cool. What a last name, by the way. (laughs) Thanks. Paul Pastor. You're like the... uh, See, are you familiar with the rescue heroes? The like kids' toy? <laughs> no, I'm not. Oh, okay. But... Their names are like very on the nose, like like oh, you know, great. like the fireman's name is Billy Blazes or oh, whatever. Yeah. And I was like, Christian poet Paul, Paul Pastor. Pastor, perfect Pastor. name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Watch, well, you're gonna tell me we'll it's a stage that. name or something. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but it is yeah. very confusing yeah. for many people. A pseudonym. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's right. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. 
But we should probably get to the rest of these audience questions. Yeah, let's right? do it. Because we, we got to yeah, make let's room do it. for the folks uh, coming in at two. That's so true. Oh, we oh make that's sure true. We All right, let's, let's rock and roll. So I got two uh, questions for you. Great. Uh, or these are not questions, actually. So so here, real quick. So, um, <laughs> A statement. <laughs> yeah. Extasis Fireside member and friend Michael Bonikowski wants you to know that you're awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Uh, also, um, Tim Cowley wants me to ask you about your Hungarian interests. Oh, my Hungarian. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, you don't that, have to answer that's that. Where the name, that's where the name pastor comes from. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my, my ethnic background is, is Hungarian on my father's side. Very cool. And, very uh, cool. Yeah. Off the air. We'll, we'll continue to talk about Hungary. Okay. Um, uh, but Laura Reese Hogan, who's here, oh, yeah. uh, Nate and I had the opportunity to meet oh, her today uh, just by, by chance or perhaps predestination. Mm-hmm. Laura, yeah, Laura and I happen to be registering next to each other this morning for, for mm-hmm. events and I heard her name spoken. I was like, oh, by the way, I'm rich. <laughs> but um, uh, Laura asks this, nature and place play such pivotal roles in your work. Mm-hmm. Could you please say a little about how the natural world interacts with questions of faith in mm-hmm. your writing process? Absolutely. Now you've spoken to this to some degree, but yeah, I mean, the only last thing that I would add to it is we live within an icon. Um, the book, yes. the book of nature, has been really, you know, that that is a profound and historic Christian term. But we live within an icon. We live within within a non-accidental, image-based reality. And if we choose to see where we are and what we are, we will spend a lifetime growing as a result of that. Noah Fisbach asks, what advice would you give, so a poet himself, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to combining your faith with your artistic practice in writing poetry? Don't like overthink practical. it. Okay. Don't overthink it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Just be you. Love it. God made you special and he loves you very much. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> very good. Um, that's not that's not a trite answer. Yeah, I no, really no, mean I, it. I understand Don't that. overthink it. Yeah. Very cool. You'll ruin it. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Um, Love that. So what I would love to do at this point is I would love to ask if you would be willing to read us one of your new poems that has been written since Bower Lodge. Absolutely. That would be amazing. Yeah. I'm going to read you um, a piece from my major work in progress right now. The working title is called The Sun and it is, please let me know if you think of a better one. S-U-N or S-O-N? Yeah. S-U-N. Okay. Yeah. Let me think, <laughs> let me know if you think of a better one. Okay. Um, but it's it's basically a long form canto project that is narrative and very rhythmic, as we've been talking about. Uh, it's a big How Italian. Yeah, cool. it's a big thing. So uh, this is one of the sort of later cantos from this. It has possibly the longest title I've ever written. Canto fifty five, mm. lines to be read to Doris Day's recording of K. Sarah Sarah. As introduced in Alfred Hitchcock's 1956 film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Love that movie. Or while picking a little meat from one's teeth. Or while watching the aggression of unusual tides. It is all breathing. The push and pull of elements. The hirsute darkness and bald light. Old men tilting checkerboards. The moon. The outward world reflects in inward sea. Planets roll as bocce on galactic lawns, each flung to orbit the sun's roaring polino. 
and you and I stand witness to it all. Empire of Empyrean magnetics that press down, draw up, wash us, drown us with the hampered light. Gifts, the gifts, the tragedy, the triumph, the resignation of the long-clenched hand opening. And in our furling palms, bearing marks of nails, fists, the fists, what shall we find? Lilith's pearlescent fountain? The aquiline stigmata of dear Christ? When we let go, what will we have left? If we hold holding no longer, what tethers us to our false thrones to which our asses have so smackingly adhered? What will be left us if we finally see the pieces slide in games far past our comprehension? That in our moving, we are moved. That in our playing, we are played. What will be left us but to sing? It is all breathing. I am all breathing. It is all life. I am all life. It is all praising, and I shall give all my praise. Endings, beginnings, let all be to me according to your word. I got nothing. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, I can't wait for that to come out. That's going to be great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. We are running low on time, which breaks my heart, but hopefully it can be consumed back together by reading more of your poem <laughs> later. But um, real quick, if our listeners have any further questions for you or would like to get in contact, is there a place mm. that you would recommend them contacting you? Yeah, you know, they're welcome to write me a letter at Post Office Box 36, Bridalville, Oregon, 97010. Love that. Unless you're a real creeper, I will <laughs> always reply. And if I don't, if it's delayed, don't think you're a creeper, just something else happen um also connecting with me on twitter is is a great way get on twitter if you're if you're not it, it's super dumb and it's super awesome all at once it's either the woods on the one hand or twitter on the other. yes exactly <laughs> right and then you can also find a contact form on my website www.pauljpastor.com great well listeners if you like this episode be sure to subscribe to four from 360 on your favorite podcast app and let us know what you thought of this conversation with paul pastor over on instagram at forefront fest until next time pursue authentic faith and excellent art but don't leave just yet paul would you close us with a reading of your benediction at Absolutely. the end of bauer Lodge? i'd love to thank you rich Here and nate the ideal close mm. benediction some day will come your knowing that not all that can be done must be done. That you were always free to be who you were, that one only and no one else. In that blessing you will go, from and in it, for and to it. Blessing you will go, and into the grass of the long valley you will go in peace.